Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and I have such a pleasure to have in person the author of Pork Barrel Politics, How Government Spending Determines Elections in a Polarized Era. The book is published by Columbia University Press, and the author is Andrew Sidman, a colleague and a friend and someone I have here in person. So rare that that happens. Andrew, thank you for writing the book and sharing it and being here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here in person. So often I don't get to look at the author face to face. This is a great chance to do this and talk about your really interesting book. I know you so well. I know all about your background. But would you share just a little bit about where you've been and where you are now? Sure. Uh, Did my undergrad at Fordham University, uh, double majored in political science and economics. Did my PhD at Stony Brook, finished there in 2007. wrote a dissertation involving pork barrel politics that this book would grow out of, but is ultimately very, very different from in many ways. I've been at John Jay College for, this is my 13th year in the political science department. I'm currently the chair of that department, uh, a tenured uh, associate professor. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, It's shocking to me that you've been here for 13 years. It's not shocking to me uh, that you've written such an interesting book about such an interesting topic. Um, but it's a topic and title even that um, uh, even the lay person thinks they know a lot about, but they probably don't. So let's start, start with some definitions uh, with some easy ones. What is pork? Uh, what is pork barrel politics? Where did that name even come from? What's the history of this? And, you know, do you have a like a favorite over the top example of pork barrel politics, because probably anyone interested in DC or not interested in DC has that one funny case that they like to refer to. So tell us just about that part of the book. Sure. Uh, I guess we'll start with the basic definitions. Pork is the government spending on projects and programs that supposedly members of Congress like to get for their constituents. The idea is that when members of Congress get this type of spending, voters like them better and they're more likely to be reelected. And that's been the prevailing theory in the literature for decades. It seems to be the way that many members of Congress have thought about their job for centuries. Pork barrel politics is simply the way that these projects and this government spending comes to be, right? the reasons for this spending to exist. And it's, I guess a, a prominent or a famous or a salient recent example of this would be the bridge to nowhere. Uh, So that bridge connecting the mainland of Alaska to a small island that would have cost billions and billions of dollars and benefit a small handful of people. My favorite, personally, is a program that most people don't know a whole lot about. It's the Airport Improvement Program. Uh, It's a program that has a, a noble purpose, if you will. It's to improve airports across the United States. It's an example I use in class as a very typical pork barrel program because it's a program that only benefits certain districts. If your district has an airport, it will benefit from this program. If you are in one of the many districts that doesn't have an airport that receives one of these grants, you don't get that money. Now, most, I think, observers, those that have been paying attention, would say uh, pork is gone. Uh, Congress got rid of it a decade or so ago. Um, Is pork gone from the legislative process, or is there still some pork referred to by another name. Pork is alive, well, and growing year after year after year. So in 2009 and 2010, 
the movement to ban earmarks gained a lot of steam. It started with the Democrat-controlled Appropriations Committee in the House, and then extended to the entire Republican conference, who decided uh, in, in 2009 and 2010, and then after regaining control of the House of Representatives, to simply ban earmarks altogether. Earmarks, however, are a very small part of government spending that can be that can be sent to particular districts. That is geographically targetable. So that's the key here: is that the spending. We're not talking about all federal spending. We're talking about the federal spending that has a um, has a specific place in mind. And as a consequence, uh, because our politics is geographically determined, members of Congress can take credit. Uh, does that seem to matter to them? Uh, how do we know that it matters to them in, in ways that we can observe? We'll talk about the analysis of some of the, the detailed electoral uh, dimensions of this, but does a member of Congress talk about this uh, when they, they have this money given specifically to their district? So so one way that, that we at least believe that this matters for members is that they actually do claim credit for this spending. They'll bring up projects and programs that they've brought back to the district in the speeches that they give in town halls. They will bring up this spending in the communications they have with their district. So if anyone's ever received a newsletter or an email from their member of Congress, chances are that part of, of that communication claimed credit for something that the member of Congress had brought to the district. Now, um, your um, the book is, is more than just anecdotal. You offer a pretty clear and pretty systematic argument for how this all works, for how these pieces pull together. I wonder if you talk a little bit about that theoretical argument about the links between pork barrel spending and electoral politics. So that's really the focus here. Sure. So my argument is largely a response to the way that the academic literature has treated pork barrel electoral politics since the 1970s. We start with this idea that that pork barrel politics is a type of credit claiming. Members of Congress get this spending, they get to claim credit for it, and it becomes an important part of the advantages that incumbents have when they run for re-election. The argument I make is that this type of spending is actually not the credit claiming that that it has always been treated as, that this spending, much like government spending broadly, is an ideological issue. It's an issue on which voters can and do divide, but is an issue that's not very salient. Because it's not salient, it takes something like a high level of polarization to activate it in the minds of voters. So that there's this uh, temporal dynamic to it uh, that, that you're arguing that during changing politics, pork barrel politics becomes more or less important. Tell us about, a little bit about the data that you collect, because your, your analysis is, is not simply of, this, um, of, the, of our current time period or even the period immediately before the earmark ban. You go back a long way. So what did you? What are the data that you collected over what time period, and, and what are the, the key variables that you're able to uh, measure in, in this data collection? Sure. So there are there are three data sets that I look at here. One is an aggregate data set which goes back to the 1870s. It really looks at, at election results at a national level since the end of the Reconstruction era. The second data set is an individual level one, and that uses uh, national election study data. Right, so these are surveys that are given every two years. They are the gold standard for our, our for what we know about the opinions and behavior of the mass public around federal elections. And the third set of data are data on district level 
uh, House election returns. And these data go back to, at least in the book, to 1986. We only have very good district level data on pork barrel spending going back to 1983, which is why that data is truncated. Yeah. So uh, with this um, large and varied source of data, you're able to test some of your expectations. Uh, You've alluded to those expectations so far, but maybe you could play those out in a little more detail. What did you expect to find based on this, this sort of theoretical uh, argument that you make? What did you expect to find in the data? And then we'll talk about what you actually found. Sure. Well, I expected there to be a, a heavy ideological component to the way that voters react to pork barrel spending. Traditional pork barrel spending, so the you know, things like the Bridge to Nowhere, the Airport Improvement Program, um, these are programs that represent a commitment of, of government money, which is public money. Um, I expect generally that conservatives don't like this kind of spending and that liberals tend to prefer this kind of spending. Um, from an, with an ideological dynamic where polarization plays a role is that it's only when we are more divided as a society that something like pork barrel spending becomes salient to the American people. That is, most people aren't typically paying attention to the money that's spent in their district on these projects and programs. But when we're very divided, that information becomes more relevant and it becomes more tied to our more general opinions on government spending. And and what did you find? Um, Is the effect of pork politics contingent on these other factors like polarization? And, And if so, how large of these effects? It is more or less what I find, and the findings are remarkably consistent across the different types of models. At an aggregate level, this relationship has existed at least since the end of Reconstruction, when we were very polarized at the end of the 19th century. Back then, really, pork barrel spending was simply public work spending. Republicans would be punished when there was a lot of public work spending. Democrats would benefit from this. The relationship all but disappears as we get into the, the 1930s, the World War II, the Cold War era. This is a period of very low polarization, and people aren't necessarily paying a lot of attention to, to that kind of spending or linking it to their, their pre-existing attitudes. It's going to be once we get into the 1970s, the 80s, the 90s, and into the 21st century, polarization begins to rise. These partisan ideological relationships reemerge again. And, 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 so, and so what does that mean in practice? If you are a um, person who holds a conservative uh, view, you're a conservative, uh, living during a time period of low polarization, uh, and, and there is a big project, f- big federal project that is placed in your district, uh, a hospital, a road, uh, uh, something of that sort, uh, what does your model predict about my reaction to that? project, that pork, uh, during the 1950s, let's say, when when polarization levels were relatively low. So in a period with low polarization, the model would say that there's very little systematic, there's practically no systematic effect. It might be that some conservatives react negatively to that kind of spending. Maybe some react positively. Maybe there's no reaction at all, but there is no systematic relationship there. There's something about this, this period of, of, of high polarization, of division in the mass public that activates all manner of different issues as, 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 as being heightened in an ideological sense. So that 
if you think of, of some of the more dominant theories for the way that we understand and process information about politics, uh, we're paying more attention during this period of high polarization to information on this type of spending. And while we might forget the specifics of it, we're adding that information to our overall evaluations of, of, of members of government, of government spending overall, in a way that during low polarization, I don't have any evidence of, of, of that happening. Yeah. And if we fast forward then to um, the same person with the same beliefs, and now I'm uh, living during a period of, of high polarization, let's say uh, during the 1990s would be uh, maybe in your data set, the, a time period that would be very different than the 1950s. And uh, a similar kind of project is, is located in my district um, uh, this, with all of the same benefits to me as an individual. Um, my reaction now is likely to be quite negative. In, in what ways? Am I, am I likely to express that in, in my views or in my um, uh, uh, voting patterns for the, the member of Congress who has taken credit for that pork project? So the expression happens both in opinions and behavior. Uh, what my results show is that conservatives are going to react more negatively to government spending when they live in a district that has received more of this spending. They're also going to be less likely to vote for their incumbent in the upcoming election. So using those election returns, there's also a, there's a, there's a broader, more fundamental thing happening here. Um, it's that it's almost impossible to pinpoint a specific cause for specific results, especially in the context of a congressional election. Um, so you think, if you think of what the voter is, is, is doing or reacting to, or in this case, I'll say the potential voter, um, what they're reacting to, um, it's not just that they're less likely to vote for their Republican incumbents who, who get this spending. The results show up in terms of, of campaign spending and fundraising as well. So that Republican incumbents who do a lot of pork barreling wind up facing challengers that are able to spend more money. It means that more money is being directed to, to their challengers. Uh, they themselves are having to spend more on their reelection. And part of that is both a function of, of running a weaker campaign or at least being in a weaker position because of possibly pork barrel spending and other issues. Part of it is also wrapped up with primary elections as well. So I have a chapter on, on primary elections. And generally what I find is that when Republicans in this heightened polarization environment, when they engage in a lot of pork barreling, they're more likely to be challenged. And being challenged in a primary, and even when you win, can have serious repercussions for your reelection. So what are then the knock-on effects of this? Uh, uh, knowing this, not maybe not knowing the empirics of your book, but as a member of Congress being able to kind of gather this, um, it would suggest a, a, a change in, in legislative behavior. Um, even if you didn't find this empirically, what do you suspect members of Congress are doing in, uh, if they read your book, or even if they didn't read the book, if they said, I don't need to read the book, I already know, I kind of, I already know this about my constituents. How are they going to react? So in the, the conclusion of the book, I step out onto speculative ground. And when I've talked about the book at, in, in other venues, I describe it as a small piece of an explanation for the huge phenomenon of, of polarization that's been, that has just gripped our daily politics. 
Um, our elites, particularly members of Congress, seem unable to function. They are unable to create policy. And I think that this book helps explain a small part of the reason why. So one of the, one of the, the true failures, I think, of American society today is our inability to legislate on, on issues of consequence. And if you look at the literature on, on how members of Congress, either entrepreneurial ones or party leaders, one way that they were able to make these larger bipartisan deals in the past is partly through pork barreling, right? The ability to essentially trade votes for other things that members of Congress want. And what my results suggest is that that has become very difficult to do in Congress. Republicans are generally unwilling to accept that kind of spending. Now, there are some types of, of pork barrel projects that Republicans do like, so-called contingent liability programs. Um, these are programs that if you look at the current iteration of Congress, um, Speaker Pelosi is probably not willing to trade contingent liability programs or spending and for Republican votes on policy. Yeah, maybe you can describe a little bit more just what that technical term means. Ah, so a, a contingent liability is different from a traditional type of pork barrel spending. Contingent liability programs are insurance and loan programs. Uh, so these are programs where the federal government will either pay a beneficiary in case of a loss, in case of insurance, or make a loan where the expectation is, is that the loan will be repaid. Small business loans are the most common type of, of, or at least the most salient type of contingent liability program. You can think of student loans, uh, federally uh, funded or federally subsidized student loans as operating the same way. And they can be targeted at a, at a district or individuals in a district in a similar, in an analogous way? In an analogous way as to traditional pork barrel spending. Like what? Like uh, uh, beach erosion uh, insurance? Think of national flood insurance. Uh Uh, National flood insurance is something that applies to certain districts. If you don't live in a flood zone or near a large body of water, um, you wouldn't qualify, right? Your district wouldn't qualify for for that type of benefit. So much in the same way as pork barrel spending generally can be targeted, these types of programs can be targeted as well. How much of this history helps explain the earmark ban uh, that, that kicks in where we started our conversation? How much of that is the symbolic politics of uh, sending a signal to constituents uh, that, that uh, members of Congress agree that this kind of spending is bad, while at the same time maintaining the same kind of um, authority to do things just under a different name? How much of that was a sort of a, a screen that allowed members to sort of signal one thing and do something else. I think the earmark ban has existed as a signal for a long time. Ronald Reagan very famously um, gave a few speeches decrying earmarks and this terrible type of spending. Even President Clinton, right? Even Clinton talked about banning earmarks, right? This became popular for presidents to do as a way of showing their fiscal responsibility. Uh, members of Congress never showed much appetite for banning earmarks. And I think it only really happens right, with, with a, you know, you have the confluence of a few different important events. One of those is the Great Recession. Right? So the, the earmark or the movement to ban earmarks actually begins with the Democrat-controlled Appropriations Committee in the House. And I think in, as, as, as the, with the onset of the Great Recession, I think Democrats were, were very much taking responsibility right, for, for the government's finances and trying to put the, the nation um, back into a position of fiscal health. 
Republicans simply move forward with banning earmarks altogether. And again, while it's a small piece, I think it's a symbolic reflection of the empirical reality. They have now learned that their voters don't like this kind of spending. There is no reason for Republicans to get this kind of spending. So that an earmark ban becomes a very public, very visible way to signal to their constituents that hey, we, we, we agree with you on this and we're not going to do it anymore. Yeah, the, the book again is Pork Barrel Politics, How Government Spending Determines Elections in a Polarized Era. Uh, the book is published by Columbia University Press this year. And the author who you've been hearing from is Professor Andrew Sidman. Andrew, thank you very much for your time. Thank you again, Heath. 